All right, well, we are going to um, talk about Samson again tonight. <clears throat> this is the second part of our study on Samson, and uh, he has more chapters about him than any other judge. Uh, we won't be reading all of his, because uh, we're going to cover three chapters tonight, and so we're not going to read all of that. Um, but there's a lot that takes place, but a lot of it is kind of repetitive, and uh, some of it is stories that we already know, so we'll just kind of pull out from uh, some of these stories, uh, some different points along the way. And so um, let's, uh, let's start in chapter 14. And um, so the, the chapter 13 just kind of told the story of Samson coming and of him being born. Now Samson, uh, chapter, or Judges chapter 14, we're uh, getting into some of Samson's life. And so uh, verse 1 says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there, not an, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines. For at that time, they were ruling over Israel. And so we start out with a story about... Um, uh, about Samson, who is a Israelite, uh, but instead of marrying within the Israelite clan, he goes out to the Philistines and he finds a woman there that he wants to marry. And so, a couple of things we can see here is that first of all, uh, Samson has no problem going uh, to and from Philistine cities. You know, he goes down to Timnah. Um, there, there's no hostilities there because uh, if there was hostilities, then we'll probably hear a story about a fight or he wouldn't come back or something like that. Because the Philistines were ruling over Israel at this time, uh, throughout this story, we see that they were just interacting like it was no big deal. Uh, it was like a peaceful occupation. Uh, the Philistines were ruling over the Israelites, but almost in a peaceful sort of way. They still had their hands on them and were still ruling them, uh, but there wasn't just definite all the time hostilities going on. And, uh, and there's, there's enough peace to where Samson could legitimately go down and see a Philistine woman and think, well, you know, I can marry her and her family would be okay with it and they would go through that, that process. Um, when he tells his family, we can see that his mother and father still are trying to hold on to some of the Israelite laws and expectations. Uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, both uh, talk about uh, that you are not supposed to marry outside the nation of Israel. And it wasn't an issue of race, but it was an issue of religious purity. Uh, God did not want the Israelites marrying outside the nation of Israel. Uh, because that would mean that they were marrying outside the religious, you know, religious allegiance to Yahweh. And that's really what Samson's parents talk about here. Uh, whenever they uh, uh, are talking about finding a wife in Israel, verse 3, he says, Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Now, that's not just like a racist slur or something like that. He's making a specific point by calling them uncircumcised Philistines. Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. So it was a sign that you were among the covenanted people of God who were elite in allegiance to Yahweh. And so by drawing that out, he's basically saying, why must you go to a somebody outside the covenant of Yahweh to find a wife? Why can't you marry somebody who is inside the covenant with Yahweh? And so Samson's parents are trying to lead him um, to... Uh, uh, to find somebody who is from within Israel. But Samson says, no, he says, get her for me. And verse 4 tells us that this is God working in the background to make this happen, to kind of stir up what was going on in Israel. Um, since Israel was comfortable 
with the Philistines since they were okay with their occupation. There was no desire for them to break out of that. There was no desire for them to, you know, to be a free country or to be a free land. Um, and so uh, God is having to kind of stir the pot a little bit. He's kind of having to stir things up to begin this process. And so Samson goes down, verse 5, um, and uh, as they, uh, they, they go down to Timnah, as they approach the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. Verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Now, verse 6, I'm not exactly sure what this means. It says that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I don't know if there's a certain process of tearing a young goat with your bare hands. Uh, nowhere in Scripture you know, does it tell us that, but apparently this is something that uh, Samson knew how to do. <laughs> and, you know, and David talks about sort of the same thing. He killed a bear and a lion with his bare hands. And so you know, I think this is something probably that the Lord empowers people to do in a moment that is necessary. But obviously they're just trying to draw a distinction between something that is large and ferocious and something that is small and gentle. Um, and verse 8 says, Sometime later when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. And in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. And so this must be a long period of time because this is the carcass has had time to dry out, decay. It's not covered by flies and worms now. It's covered by honeybees. That would have taken a long time for that to, to take place. So this is some long time that's come aside, come, come and gone. Um, and then Samson does probably what all of us would do. Verse 9, he scooped out the honey of the lion's carcass with his hands and ate it as he went along. Show of hands, y'all want some lion honey at Thanksgiving? No? <laughs> no, uh, obviously Samson's got some other issues that he needs to work through <laughs> if he's eating honey out of dead animals. But um, he ate it, but he did not tell. And then he took some and he gave it to his parents. So, hey, look, you know, this is kind of goes back to Halloween. You know, they tell you don't eat candy if it's not in a wrapper. If your kids bring you honey that's not in a sealed bottle, you may not want to eat it because it could have come from somewhere you don't want it to come from. Um, and so he gave it to them, uh, and, uh, but it says he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. We'll just come back to that in a little bit. Um, and so verse 10, his, his uh, family goes down. Uh, they're having the wedding feast. Verse 10 says he held a feast as it was customary for young men. This would have been a week-long feast. Samson gives them a riddle. He says, if you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Uh, this is a very, this, this is referring to an, like a nice, this is your church clothes. You know, this would be like your tailored suit kind of clothes. You know, something that they might only have one, one pair of. You know, some, something that would be really nice, really expensive. Um, he says, he gives them the riddle. Uh, they try to answer the riddle, but they cannot find it, um, and so are figured out. So they go to his new wife, and they ask her to go find it for him. Verse sixteen: uh, the, the Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, "You hate me! You don't really love me! You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't even told me the answer." Um, she continues bugging him and continues bugging him um, uh, about the riddle, and so finally, before sunset on the seventh day. Uh, he, he tells her the riddle and then before sunset on the seventh day the men come to tell him the answer so what is sweeter than honey what is stronger than a lion uh, and then Samson said to them if you had not plowed with my heifer not a good thing to call your new wife just you know just 
throwing that out there. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. And so really the reason that that phrase is in there is because it's showing how Samson's attitude towards her has turned. Uh, initially he saw her, he fell in love with her, he wanted her even so much that he was willing to go against his parents' will to go after this woman. Um, he cares for her, he uh, is with her throughout this week of celebration, and now that she has betrayed his trust, he kind of turns on her. You see his attitude turn on her a little bit, um, but he is still he's still going to be loyal to her. We'll see here in this in this in this passage. Um, verse nineteen: The spirit of the Lord. Uh, so so since they answer the riddle, now what does Samson have to do? He's got to come up with thirty garments. So. He's got to come up with 30 tailored suits. This is a nine, you know, this is something he's got to come up with uh, quick. And so verse 19 says, The Spirit of the Lord came uh, powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. So his new wife was given to somebody else to be their wife. Chapter 15 um, later on, uh, Samson uh, goes back to Timna to visit his wife. Uh, some of the things I was reading said that there was this may have been a certain type of arrangement where the wife stayed in the home of her father for a period. Uh, it was still Samson's wife, but she would have stayed there. And he doesn't know yet that she's been given away. We'll see here in a moment. And so that's probably why he was going to visit her. And he may be taking a young goat. Maybe he had ripped it in half with his bare hands. I don't know. Um, but he takes this young goat maybe as a peace offering. Maybe it's some sort of customary. Who knows? Um, he goes in. He says, I'm going up to my wife's room. But her father would not let him go in. Verse 2, I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Um, and Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. And so his, dad, his father-in-law has given his, his wife to somebody else, but he tries to appease him. You know, his father-in-law is still being amicable about it. He says, here, you can have the younger daughter. She's prettier anyway. Dad's not a good, not a good thing to say about your daughters. Um, but he says, here, take my younger daughter, marry her. She's prettier anyway. But Samson wouldn't have that. He wanted to marry uh, this, the, first, the first daughter. And so he uh, caught 300 foxes, tied them tail to tail in pairs, and put a torch between every pair of tails, and um, sent that through the standing grain in, uh, in the uh, harvest of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and standing grain together with the vineyards and olive groves. So he decimated the Philistines' crops. You know, he sent all these foxes out there. They lit up the whole harvest of the Philistines, and he decimated their crops for that season. Because of that, verse uh, second part of verse 6 says, The Philistines went up and burned her, the wife, and her father to death. And so you think Samson would be okay with that, maybe, because he's already mad. He's ticked off at the dad. He's ticked off at the wife. He's mad at everybody. But verse 7 says, Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in the cave in the Rock of Edom. So even though... Um, even though they were getting vengeance on somebody he'd probably want to get revenge on too, he was still being loyal to his wife. He did not want them exacting punishment on her. And so he punished them for what they did. Um, and so the next part of this story is uh, the Philistines come and they camp against Judah. And they're going to attack the tribe of Judah. And they said, the way we want to attack you is if you bring Samson to us. So they go to Samson. They said. Uh, can, we're going to deliver you over to the Philistines, otherwise they're going to destroy us. So he says, here, tie me up with some ropes. 
We know how that usually works out. Um, and so they deliver him to the Philistines. They take him into the center of the camp. And um, when they're about to attack him, he breaks free of the bonds. He picks up the jawbone of a donkey and he kills 3,000 of the Philistines. And, um, and just tore them down. In verse 16, we see a victory song. He says, uh, With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. And so when he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone, and the place was called Ramath Lehi. Uh, and then verse 18, we see an interesting period, an interesting little uh, caveat here. He says, Because he was very thirsty, he cried out to the Lord, You have given your servant this great victory. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? Then God opened up the hollow place in Lehi, and water came out of it. When Samson drank, his strength returned, and he revived. So the spring was called En Hakor, and it is still there in Lehi. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Now, <clears throat> sorry. Now, when God has provided for people in the past, uh, what do they typically name that place? Give me just some ideas that they might name a place where God provided something. I'm not, it doesn't have to be some specific in Scripture. Just what might they call it if God provided a resource they needed? Like the Lord will provide... Or the Lord sustains. Uh, the Lord is my provider. The Lord is my rock. You know, things like that. They, they do something to acknowledge what God has done. Um, the word in hakor it, uh, refers to uh, the person requesting the item. So instead of God's water or God's spring, it's the spring of the one who calls. That's basically what that means. And so Samson names the spring after himself. He says, I called on the Lord, and the Lord gave me a spring. And so you can still see this pride that is wrapped up in Samson. He doesn't even acknowledge the fact that God gave him the water. He says, this is the water that belongs to the one who calls. And so this is his spring. This is Samson's springs. It's not God's springs. It's Samson's springs. And so there's lots of pride that, that courses through Samson's life. <clears throat> so the next thing that we see is the story of Samson and Delilah. We, we know this story pretty much, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it. But he goes uh, down to Gaza. He goes into a prostitute named Delilah. And um, the men of the city find out he's here. and they try to, They're going to kill him, but at, they're going to do it at dawn. But he gets up in the middle of the night and he leaves town. Uh, he, he comes back um, and he spends time with Delilah again and again. And so the men of the city come to Delilah. And it says in verse 5, The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Um, now, sometimes we romanticize this story, okay, because it says that Samson loved Delilah. But what was Delilah's occupation? She's a prostitute. Do you think Delilah loved Samson? She's a businesswoman. This is what she does for a career. She's a prostitute. And so she is up for the highest bidder, basically. There's no love loss here. You know, she's just in it for the money. And so the Philistines come to her and say, uh, each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels. That comes out uh, to about 700 pounds of silver. 700 pounds of silver. If you were to put that equivalent in today's silver value, um, that comes out to about $200,000 that they're offering her to, to betray Samson. Um, one commentary I read said that um, 
that this really was about one year's wage of an average one year's wage, like uh, the 700 pounds of silver. Oh, no, 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 not that. The, uh, the shekels, each one of them giving them the shekels was about um, uh, an average year's wage. And so if you were to take that and multiply it in today's standpoint, that would be like them giving them um, $15 million. That would be like her giving them 15, or them giving her $15 million in order to betray uh, to betray to betray Samson and so by giving them 1100 shekels of silver uh, that was like them giving her almost uh, 15 million dollars and so um, you know so somewhere in the middle there but they're giving her a lot of money to betray Samson so that's why she's willing to do this and that's why she keeps going and she keeps going because she is a businesswoman and Samson is a, an idiot basically because he just keeps falling into her trap and he keeps telling her more and keeps telling her more and we can see a pattern here when there's a woman that Samson is in love with, if she nags him long enough, he's going to give her what she wants in order to make her be quiet. Um, he does not like to be roped into things. He does not like to be squeezed. And really, the the word that is um, that they use here to to describe to describe her uh, her uh, talking to her, um, she you know all this time you've been making a fool of me. Uh, uh, let's see, verse let's see, verse fifteen. How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Verse 16, with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so what that word literally means in Hebrew is a picture word. It means she was squeezing him. And so she was squeezing him. She was squeezing him. And it's the same word that's used of the first wife whenever she kept bugging him, kept bugging him, kept bugging him throughout the week trying to get uh, the answer to the riddle. And so what we see here, Samson doesn't like to be squeezed. And if you squeeze Samson long enough, he's going to spill his secrets. And so she, he spills the secrets. She shaves off his head. And the Philistines come in. Um, he awakes. And he says, verse 20, He awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza, binding him with the bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And so the last part of this chapter is the Philistines were having a party, uh, offering sacrifices to Dagon to celebrate the fact that he has given them Samson. It says in verse 23, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. When they saw Samson, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And so they are celebrating. They're praising their God because Samson has been captured. They believe that Dagon, their God, has given them Samson. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we have, we, we have a divine presence kind of brought into this argument. And so they bring Samson out. They're going to make him entertain them. Um, and he, he puts, they, they put him between the two pillars of the, of the temple. And um, verse 28, Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. Then his brothers and fathers whole family went down to get him. They brought him back and buried him between Zorah and Eshtel in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had led Israel for 20 years. 
And so we're going to kind of, that's kind of a summary of the story. Um, And we're going to look at it and kind of see some of Samson's struggles and see how those things can kind of apply to us as well and and some ways to avoid those. So um, so let's look at some of these. Uh, Samson's struggles. Now, I pulled out a verse here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, uh, because I think this is a good summary of Samson's struggles. It says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Samson was lured away by the world. He was born to be dedicated to the, to the Lord, but instilled, instead he was dedicated to the world. Um, his focus is lured away by a love for immoral women. So the desires of the flesh, the pleasures of the flesh, lured him away. Samson was a... Uh, um, he was ruled by his sexuality. He could not control his desires. He could not control his sexuality. Um, he is a good picture of a lot of the culture that we live around that is ruled by the sexual pleasures of life. Um, the culture that's around us tells you to, to not withhold your sexual pleasure, just to indulge in it and enjoy it because that's what it's for. Um, and so Samson lived that way. He was lured away by his love for immoral women. Um, he went away from uh, the women of the Israelites and he went to the women of the Philistines. Now, this is a direct contrast to how the judges started. If you remember back in the first judge, Othniel, they make a very clear point to talk about the family that his wife came from. Uh, his wife came uh, from the family of Caleb, one of Joshua, you know, one of those faithful followers of Moses, Joshua and Caleb, two spies who were trusted the Lord and, and followed the Lord. His wife came from Caleb's family. And they make a very clear point of that. So Othniel married well. We talked about that in our first study on Othniel. Um, He married well. He married a woman who loved the Lord. Samson is completely opposite. He goes after women who aren't, not only do they not love the Lord, they are outside the covenant people of uh, of the Lord. Um, So Samson craves the desires of the flesh, but he also has the desires of the eyes. He doesn't restrain himself from anything he sees and wants. So if Samson sees it, he's going to go get it. And this goes back to the honey and the lion, okay? Now, most of us probably would see honey and a lion in a dead animal and think, I don't want that, <laughs> right? But I guess Samson was hungry. He was on the way, um, and he decided he's going to go look at this lion that he killed a few months ago. He sees some honey, and so he just decides he's going to eat it. Now, what is this? why is that significant for Samson? Can, you, can anybody guess? Remember, think back to his Nazarite vow and who he is. Why is it significant that he ate honey out of a dead animal? He touched a dead carcass. As a Nazarite, he was not supposed to touch the, uh, anything dead. That was part of his vow from birth. Also, just as an Israelite, he's not supposed to touch anything dead. And if he does, he has to go through a seven-day ritual uh, purification process to be pure once again. And so Samson doesn't care. And in, verse, in, in, in those passages, it, it shows that he knows what he's doing, um, but he doesn't do anything about it. Um, because in verse 6, it says that he tore the line apart, but he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Why is that in there? If it was inconsequential that he killed a lion, they wouldn't have put that. You know, who would care if you told him or didn't tell him? But it's pointing out the fact that Samson hid this indiscretion that he had made. And then whenever he scooped out the honey, who did he take it to? He took it to his parents, but he did not tell them that he had taken honey from the lion's carcass. So not only did he defile himself, but he also defiled his family by giving them something that was from a, a dead carcass. 
And so Samson is, uh, does not care about the covenant relationship or the covenant with the Lord. And he also doesn't care about his Nazarite vow. If he sees something, nothing's going to hold him back from getting what he wants. Uh, and we can kind of get this picture of this attitude whenever he finds the woman in Timnah. Because what does he see? I saw a woman and I want her as my wife. Go get her for me. And Manoah should have said no. <laughs> but he didn't, he didn't do that. Um, because in that culture, it was a paternalistic culture, the, or patriarchal culture. The father picked the, the bride. The father made the arrangements for the wedding. That's why Manoah had to go down to Timnah and make arrangements for the wedding. Just like you know, we see in the stories of the patriarchs, the fathers make arrangements for the brides for their sons. And so Manoah could have said no, and maybe Samson would have just done it himself. But he doesn't restrain himself when he sees something that he wants. Um, so the desires of the eyes take precedent. And then finally, the pride of life. Samson believes in his own strength to be able to accomplish whatever he wants. Uh, we see after he has his head shaved by Delilah, she wakes up. She says, Samson, wake up. The Philistines are upon you. And it says that he got up. And what did he say? I will go out as before and, you know, whoop him up. And so he thinks, and he's just talking about I, I, I. It's all these I. <coughs> I will go out before and have, have victory. So he thinks that his strength is, cannot leave. And, and he had to know, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, guys J, uh, with eyes clouded by love make some pretty stupid decisions. We all aim in that. Yeah. You know, guys who are clouded by love can make some pretty stupid decisions. But you would think Samson, after the fourth time, you know, that Delilah has done this, that he would get the idea, I bet she shaved my head last night. <laughs> you know, and if his hair had been uh, growing that long, I mean, it's 20 years, because, well, he, he judged Israel for 20 years, and he's about to die. So that probably means he's been an adult male for at least 20 years. So he, you know, was 15 years as a child before that. So 35 years worth of hair, I mean, that's, that's a lot of hair. You know, that's like dragging the ground or a really big bun, one or the other. Um, and so you would think his head would feel about 15 pounds lighter. You know, once he got it, he might have kind of stood up, you know, or something like that, kind of felt off balance. But he didn't, he didn't care. He didn't think that you could, he could lose his strength. And uh, all of it was wrapped up in his pride. He thought it was all about him. And we know that he didn't care because already he's shown that he didn't care about um, the dead animal. He didn't care about his hair. And he didn't care about alcohol. And so Samson disregards the Nazarite vow. Um, and we see it in these three things that I just mentioned. So he touches the dead carcasses. We've already talked about that. Um, he drinks alcohol. Now this is implied. It's not explicitly stated. I want to make that clear. Um, but the wedding feast would have had wine as a central aspect to the wedding feast, especially um, in the Philistine culture. Uh, and so uh, alcohol would have been there. And judging from Samson's track record, he probably imbibed in the, uh, in the alcohol as well. So um, he touched dead carcasses. He drinks alcohol, most likely. Um, and then he cuts his hair, or he allows his hair to be cut. So he disregards all three aspects of the Nazarite vow. Now, did his strength leave him when he touched the dead animals? No. Did his strength leave him whenever he touched, whenever he drank alcohol? No. But his strength left him when he cut his hair. What do y'all, why is that? Any guesses? When, in Numbers chapter 9, when it talks about the Nazarite vow, at the period where the Nazarite vow is completed, 
you know, because most of the time they're a temporary thing. It's like, I'm going to dedicate myself to the Lord. It's kind of like a fast for us, but, you know, it'd be an extended period. Um, at the end, the time that the vow was completed, the way you show the completion of the vow is you shave your head. So whenever Samson shaves his head, that symbolically says the time of my vow is over. So the strength was tied into his vow as, you know, his Nazarite vow is being consecrated to the Lord. Once he completed his time, you know, symbolically by allowing his head to be shaved, he lost that connection with the Lord. The Lord removed that strength that he put in him as a part of that Nazarite vow. And so that's why, uh, I think that's why his, when he stood up, he didn't have that strength anymore. It's not that it was tied into the hair, but the hair symbolized the covenant that, that the God had made with him. And so whenever he cut that hair, um, <clears throat> he, he lost, that, lost that vow. And finally, talking about Samson's struggles, Samson's battles with the Philistines. They are progressively more difficult and more violent. Uh, the first thing that we see uh, is that he kills 30 guys to get their clothes. Um, the next thing that we see is that he decimates their crops. You know, so he spreads out his, his uh, effect even more. The next thing we see is that he kills 3,000 people uh, there in the, uh, uh, in the battle uh, whenever he... Um, whenever he, I'm sorry, not 3,000, 1,000. He fights 1,000 men with a jawbone. So he kills 1,000. And then at the end, he kills 3,000 or so, more than he had ever killed combined in all of his other time. And so his, his fights with the Philistines become more difficult and more violent the longer that he goes. Um, and uh, Tim Keller believes that this is really a, a pattern demonstrating our pattern of addiction and compulsion. He says, like any pattern of addiction or compulsion, the cycle is increasing in force and power. Um, so if you have ever had an addiction or know somebody who's had an addiction, the more you fall into that addiction, the more of a grip it gets on you and the harder it is to get out. And so just like Samson, the more he got into the struggle, the more violent the struggle was and the more deep the struggle was. Um, and, and the reason is because his fights are always fueled by revenge. I don't know if you noticed that. But in every time he fights with the Philistines, not once is it ever for the glory of God or for the sake of Israel. It's never because of his purpose. Um, and if you remember, the angel, told, the angel told Manoah and his wife that the purpose for Samson's birth was to begin the, the, the freedom of Israel from the Philistines, to begin that process. Now, if they were halfway decent parents, they probably told him that at least once. And so he should have known what his purpose was. His purpose was to uh, free Israel, or at least begin the process of freeing Israel from the control of the Philistines. Yet he just lived right in the middle of them, even trying to marry them, fell in love with them, and got right all in the mix. And then whenever he did fight them, it was never for the sake of Israel. It was always for the sake of revenge. So all of his interaction, even though uh, the first part of the book tells us that God was leading in this from behind, all of Sam, from Samson's standpoint, all this interaction was revenge-based. He he's getting back at them because uh, they plowed with his heifer. Uh, he's getting back at them because uh, he gave his wife to another man. He's getting back with them because he killed the family. And now he, and finally, ultimately, he uh, asked God for strength. And it's not so that I can have revenge on your enemies or have revenge on the enemies of Israel. It's let me kill them, have one more blow against them as revenge for my eyes. He's all about revenge. And so he gets deeper and deeper and deeper into the struggle, but for the wrong reasons. 
Uh, we've already mentioned this. Samson relies on his own abilities and his craftiness in his battles with the Philistines. Um, even though we see evidence of the Spirit of the Lord coming on him, Samson never gives credit to God uh, for that. So he's always relying on his abilities and craftiness. And the fights are always for himself. So Samson never fights for the sake of the purpose for which he was created, which was delivering Israel. He's always, always fighting for himself. And so, this is this the portrait of a stable, godly man? No. If, uh, if your daughter uh, said, hey, I have fallen in love, I've gone to college and I've fallen in love, let me describe the man of God to you. And this is how she described him, what would you say? <laughs> yeah, you would say, well, honey, you can either find a new man or you can find a new family. <laughs> you know? I mean, you'd, you'd come up with something, right? This is not the picture of a, uh, of a godly, centered, founded, founded on God man. Yet, this is the man that God is using and who God raised up and who God initiated his birth in order to begin the process of uh, freeing Israel. And so, um, there's still some more, some more things to look at real quick. Let's do Samson's final victory. And his final victory is a little bit different than all of his others. All of his others, he's just enraged. He goes out, you know, arms flailing, donkey jawbones flailing and killing people and, you know, doing just crazy things in, uh, in his rage and revenge and anger. His last one, we see a more helpless Samson. His head has been shaved. He's lost all of his strength. He's lost his eyes. He's lost his honor. Um, he's been, you know, he's been betrayed by the people that he loved or by Delilah, who he loved. He's finally fallen victim to his bitter enemy. And now, in his most vulnerable moment, he has to finally rely on God. And so, he, Samson must finally rely on God to win a battle. In all of other, Samson's other battles, he had the strength, even though it came from the Spirit. He thought he just had it, so he went out and he won the battle. Now he has nothing, so he finally turns to God and uh, relies on God to win the battle. And so we see a little glimpse of faith here. We see just a little bit. I mean, if you looked at Samson's life, would you think he's a man of faith? No. You'd think he was a, you know, uh, an ignorant man who did not even acknowledge God when God did, did do something for him. But here we see a little bit of faith, and this is really what Hebrews 11, 32 through 34 draws out. Uh, Brother David talked about this a couple weeks ago. What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put armies to flight. And so Samson is, is counted among the faithful. He's counted among the men of faith who did things for the Lord. And we can see that just in a glimpse here here at the very end, where he trusts God to give him strength so that he can have revenge on his enemies. Now, this battle here at the end has taken on a much grander scheme because all this before has been Samson versus his enemies. You know, it's been Samson versus the wedding, wedding people, and then Samson versus the father, then Samson versus the, uh, the murderers of his family. It's always been Samson versus somebody. But now we have another element in, inserted into the story. What was that element? It was the god Dagon. Because now the Philistines are celebrating because their god Dagon has given Israel's champion into their hands. And so in other words, the Philistines are celebrating because their god is better than Israel's god. Israel's, Israel's champion was defeating them, was winning, kept beating him, he was undefeatable. 
But their god, Dagon, ultimately had victory over him. So they're celebrating this. So now this has become not Samson versus the Philistines, um, but now this is Yahweh versus Dagon. This is Yahweh versus Dagon now. This has taken on a much, uh, a much larger uh, aspect to it. And so now Yahweh has to prove his great greatness. So this is where this is all has led to. This has all led to this ultimate showdown between Yahweh and between Dagon. And we know that Yahweh has ultimate victory whenever he brings down the temple of Dagon. And that's, that's really where this kind of boils down to. The Philistines are, are celebrating that Samson has no strength. Um, they're celebrating that Yahweh has been defeated. Because let me ask you this. If you were the Philistines, and Samson has proven over and over and over that he has immense strength, that he is super powerful, um, would you, and you believed he still had that ability, would you come in and put his arms between the two main pillars of your temple? No. They believed that his strength was tied to his hair. They shaved his head. His hair hasn't grown back. It's not long again. He has no strength. They didn't recognize the true source behind his strength, that he had been chosen and anointed by God. God was the source of Samson's strength. And so whenever God decided to do something through Samson, it didn't matter that he had hair. It mattered of that original covenant. When, did, when, did, when was the covenant going to be over according to what God had ordained to Samson's parents? He was going to be a Nazarite from birth for this whole life. And so on God's standpoint, he was still his man. Samson was still God's chosen man to deliver Israel. And so God gave Samson the strength to bring down um, the temple. And so the Philistines underestimated the true source of Samson's strength. And so let's look at some takeaways real quick. Um, first thing is this. We are often our own worst enemies. We're impulsive. We're compromising. We're unteachable. We're loners. And we're proud. Uh, we Impulsive, we make rash decisions. We make quick decisions. We don't pray through our decisions. Uh, compromising, we... We, if there's something that we really want, but it's maybe a little bit on the edge of what a Christian should do or what a person of faith should do, we might still kind of slide over there and see if we can do it anyway. Uh, sometimes we're unteachable, and uh, you know that this is this is a confession time. This is one I struggle with. I struggle with having people tell me what to do or correct me on things, and that's a pride issue that I've had to work through for for a long time. Um, and um, one of the things I think, you know, God gave me a strong wife. She's not just, you know, she's not somebody who's just meek and quiet and, you know, doesn't ever speak up or like that. You know, she'll set me straight. I know that's hard to believe. You know, because Melody is so sweet. She is sweet. But she'll set me straight. And I've had to learn that that's a gift that God has given me. God gave me her as my wife with a, with a strong will to help guide me and help mold me into being a better husband, better father, better pastor. And so we have to be teachable. Uh, we can't be loners. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. But over and over we see Samson doing all these things on his own, doing all these things himself. Um, and we're, we're, we cannot be loners if we're going to be following the Lord. And, and we definitely can't be living with pride. Pride becomes before a fall. And so we have to be, uh, we can't allow pride to, to come in. Um, we should never confuse gifting with fruit. Now this is, a, I want to explain what this means. Um, a lot of times, uh, if we have a gift, or I'll say sometimes, I don't know about a lot of times. A lot of times if we have a gift in our life, you know, a spiritual gift of some kind, whether that's, you know, especially if it's some sort of uh, gift that comes out in action. 
um, then whenever we use that gift or work out that gift, um, we see that as proof of our faithfulness or proof of our faith rather than seeing fruit out of coming out of that gift. And so what I mean by that is sometimes we substitute activity for faithfulness. Uh, and we in the church sometimes can be really bad about that. We're involved in all these different areas. Um, we are, uh, you know, if, if somebody needs something, we're the first one to sign up and all this kind of stuff. And, and we can kind of pat ourselves on the back because we've done all these things. And some people live by that. That's how they justify or prove their value as a Christian or their uh, faithfulness to God is because of all the things that they've done. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, uh, you know, <clears throat> your uh, faith is proved by your works. Our works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 through 10, tells us that uh, our, we have been saved through faith to accomplish good works which God prepared beforehand. And so the good works are a result of our faith. Our good works don't prove our faith. They are a result of our faith. And so the fruit, uh, our fruit is what shows our faithfulness to God, not just the fact that we're doing something. And Galatians 5, 22 through 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so we don't need to confuse gifting with fruit. Uh, your prayer life is a better indicator of spiritual health and religious activity. Um, so if you want to really hone in to how strong you are spiritually with the Lord, look at your prayer life. Because if you're not strong with the Lord uh, spiritually, your prayer life is going to be one of the first indicators of that. And I would say why one of the second indicators is your faithfulness to the Word, spending time in the Word. And this last one is one that <clears throat> we'll take a couple minutes to explain and probably won't be able to do an adequate job. But if God's ultimate purpose for our holiness and His glory requires leading us into sin for us to learn our lesson, He will do it. God's sovereignty and omniscience guide His purpose. And one thing that this passage makes us deal with is the fact that God led Samson into some of these sinful actions. He went to Timnah to find this Philistine for a wife, and his parents tried to talk him out of it. But verse 4 says, His parents did not know that this was from the Lord. He was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. And so one, of these, one thing that this passage makes us deal with is the fact that God led Samson into a sinful situation, a situation where he was uh, going against God's law that was given in Leviticus. But God was leading him into that. And so how can we, you know, why? Why would God lead him into that sin? Because, you know, Scripture also tells us that God does not lead us into temptation, right? It says that he will uh, put us in situations that uh, are too strong for us to bear, but he will give us the strength to endure through those things. And it, but it says he will not lead us into temptation, and so what's going on here? If you look at Israel, what do we say about Israel? Were they fighting against the Philistines? No. Were they crying out to God? No, they were complacent. They were happy. They were satisfied living in a life out of fellowship with the Lord and under the rule of an oppressive enemy. And so God had to stir the pot. And so sometimes uh, we as believers, we get complacent in our sin. We get complacent not following the Lord. And what God has to do is he has to send us a little bit deeper into our sins so that we can reach bottom, so that we can eventually turn ourselves up and, and look up. And so God's sovereignty rules over all of our actions. And his ultimate purpose is his glory and our holiness. Those are the two ultimate purposes of God, his, holiness, or his glory and our holiness, us, us becoming more like Christ. Sometimes God has to send us down a road 
that is a tough road so that we can ultimately turn up and look at him and find his will working out in our life. Um, God had to send Samson into the Philistines because the, Israel wasn't fighting against them and Samson wasn't fighting against them. He had to send him in there to stir the pot and get the battle going to ultimately lead them to, to freedom from the Philistines. And so um, we see God doing, do this occasionally. Uh, like with the story of Hosea, he tells Hosea to go marry a prostitute. And the, there was purpose in it, which was to awaken Israel to the reality of their apostasy. Um, we see that uh, in the story of Moses and Pharaoh, that God sent Mo- Moses to talk to Pharaoh, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He directed his decisions to reject God. But the purpose of that was ultimately for God's glory and for the freedom of his people. And so this is it's one of those difficult situations where sometimes we, we want to just see the love and the grace of God, but we also have to recognize the sovereignty of God over every aspect. Um, and that's one of those things that's kind of difficult to, to hold both of those things in balance as Christians. Um, but it just reminds us that we don't want to, you know, we don't want to uh, be complacent with our sin because we don't want God to send us deeper into it in order to wake us up. We, we need to deal with sin right when we see it and don't let it rule over us, don't let it have dominion over us. So we don't want God to have to use that to be the thing that wakes us up.